0: The Dreamers. One night, a boy emerges from among the clothes hanging in the open closet and stands beside the bed. He is dressed in dark woolen trousers and white shirt, buttoned at the neck, and his shiny black hair is slicked back as they wore it in his day he slowly reaches out to me. In his hand, a glass of iridescent water. The colors are my voice, an offering drawn from the mineral spring of the first beginning. Now I stand at his grave, where the world ends in the cormorant's cry and I can hear the horse's tail swishing among the trees. Like secret phosphorus, a gift of woolen socks binds the weaving hands to the oceanic light, and the plutonic rocks born of the far south rise from the shelves into our consciousness, bearing the volcanic words he left to us. His wild-haired love still sings as she dusts the weeping figurehead, the small black god, and the brass telescope, a gift from the French, and watches for his return from mountain or sea, unaware that, side by side, they live on like water or inevitability.
1: Welcome to Coffee and Poets, produced by Insaa. We are recording at Naked Lounge, 11th and H. It is Sunday, October 18th, 2015. My name is Kate Ashy and I'm here today to interview William O'Daly. Thanks so much for being here, Bill.
0: Well, thank you, Kate.
1: I think the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> <laughs> so we're just going to jump right in. Um, so... You kindly provided me with a number of links to previous interviews that you've done, which were really enjoyable. And um, I, as we discussed, I wanted to take this interview in a little bit different direction. So you're well-known, very well-known for your translation work, of course, of Pablo Neruda. And we'll talk about that a bit, but we're going to focus on some other things as well. So I thought we could start by having you describe your personal history as a poet and a translator of poetry for those in our audience who might be unfamiliar with your work.
0: I'd be happy to. Uh, It all started, I'm not sure how it started, but um, when I was an older teenager, my mother, who was a mathematician and math teacher in the L.A. City Schools, uh, bought me a little book called The Joy of Words, an anthology. And I went through that any number of times and um, loved it. And then when I got to UCSB, UC Santa Barbara, uh, I started going through the bookstore, the poetry section, and found uh, works by Neruda, uh, by Federico García Lorca, uh, various other Spanish language poets, as well as American poets. I was attracted to, uh, above all, Kenneth Rexroth, who I did not know at that time taught at UCSB. And I was there as an economics major. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, boy, was that. Down How'd that y'all? go? <laughs> <laughs> Went very well until the economic statistics. <laughs> uh, managed a D. Plus. Oh, yes. but Finally, uh,
1: an excuse to go to the literature side, right? Oh, yeah. It, and in
0: fact, um, I was on my way to an econ uh, stats course class, and I uh, walked past this small theater near the dorm, and the door was open. And this woman's beautiful voice was coming out, and I recognized it as poetry. So I turned left, 90 degrees left, headed into that auditorium, sat down, and there uh, was Kenneth Rexroth sitting in the wings, looking extremely regal in his black suit. And uh, it was a reading of four women poets, which later became an anthology of that title. And I was just so taken I forgot where I was headed. I forgot all about the, the class and uh, stayed for the reading and uh, knew at that point that I somehow was going to be a poet.
1: Mm. And had you written up to that point after your mother um, got you the book, The Joy of Words Anthology?
0: I, I had. i written a little before that and had no idea what I was doing. I wouldn't say my education in poetry was any better than anyone else's, unfortunately. Uh, but. And I can't even remember what the catalyst was that first got me to put pen to paper. But I, I kept hearing how, what a good writer I was from my high school teachers. And um, that fueled the fuel that was already there. And, uh, but when I got to Santa Barbara, it was a very intense time. And um, Vietnam War was raging. We're getting toward the end of the Vietnam War. Um, it was, you know, I was on my own. Uh, For the first time, and uh, all emotions were high, and I started writing fairly frequently. You know, at least a couple times a week, I'd make time to do it. Usually on the weekends, and so I, um, I uh, pretty, I started taking uh, workshops, started taking more English courses, um, and met. An incredible faculty. I had no idea they were there. Uh, made the acquaintance of Sam Hamill, mm-hmm. who I later founded Copper Canyon with and is a lifelong friend. We've had many adventures together. Uh-huh. And uh, um, things just started rolling. Uh, but Rexroth, uh, was, I was translating. I, I was trying it, uh, especially Neruda.
1: So the translation came early in your practice as a poet.
0: It did. It mm. did, especially uh, the Spanish poets, actually, more than the South American, uh, the generation of 27. Uh, I tried all, nearly all of them, and here and there. And, uh, but when, uh, when Rexroth invited me, Sam, and, a few, and eight other people to take his world poetry course, Uh, He told us one night at his cottage in Montecito, if you want to be a poet, translate, 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 translate. It'll increase your scope, your breadth, your understanding of your own language. Uh, It's a service that you can provide your own culture, your own culture of poetry. And um, he himself was a fantastic translator.
1: So you started translating while you were at UCSB Mm -hmm. and you never stopped.
0: Not really, no. No, I
1: and so um, recap for us the books that you have translated, and what portion of Pablo Neruda's work that represents, and perhaps um, remind us all of who Pablo Neruda is.
0: Well, Pablo Neruda is, I think, fair to fair to say, the national poet of Chile. He's a Nobel Prize winner; won the Nobel Prize in 1971. He um, may be. Uh, the best-selling poet of the 20th century if you take all translations. He's been translated into over 40 languages. Uh, if you take all of that, plus his own sales of his own books, he may well be the best-selling poet of the 20th century. Well-known, well-revered throughout the world, uh, love poems, political poems, personal poems, somewhat historical poems, mix, of course, mixed genre, if you will. And uh, he uh, was also a senator from the Mining District of Chile in the late 40s, and he was a presidential candidate in 1970, uh, bowing out to support Salvador Allende um, in that election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's, his work is vast. It, it covers, his collected works go five volumes in the original Five thick volumes, mm-hmm. and uh, he also was a translator. Although he didn't do a lot of it, he did translate a number of American poets, French. His he hero, Baudelaire, and uh, his he read a lot of Baudelaire as a young man.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I haven't read a ton of Baudelaire, but what I have read, I could see where he got some of the wild leaps um, of imagery and sort of playfulness in the language. Maybe mm-hmm. some of that came from there, perhaps.
0: Yes, uh, Paul Eluard, who I referred to as, I'll paraphrase, the most uh, humanist of all, the Mm -hmm. surrealists. And, you know, that (laughs) element, that human element was very important to Neruda. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. So you said his work comprises five volumes in its original language. Um, What portion of that work have you translated into English and in how many volumes?
0: Well, I focused on the late and posthumous work, um, late being oh, 1967 uh, through his death in 73. He had eight books, I believe it was, on his desk, unpublished when he died. And I've done four of those, three of those. I've done eight books, um, uh, Still Another Day, The Separate Rose, Winter Garden, um, The Sea and the Bells. The uh, Yellow Heart, uh, The Book of Questions, The Hands of Day, and World's End. <laughs>
1: uh-huh, that's quite a, quite a list to keep in your head. <laughs> I remembered. I remember. So um, that's wonderful. So I'd like to move now to a question about your translation practice. So these days, social media and reality television are, are ubiquitous. And um, it seems to me, at least, that the I, the, the idea of self, is everywhere reflected back to us. Your path as a poet-translator took you and still takes you, it sounds like, in some important ways away from your eye and into the eye of another. So what has or um, still does your path as a translator cost you as an individual artist in terms of your own work? And then I'll have a follow-up question after that.
0: Well, that's uh, a very interesting and complicated question. What it's cost me has probably been, um, in a sense, reputation. If I were to focus more on my own work, but it's kind of a catch 22, if I were to focus more on my own work over all those years, I probably would be within the world of poetry uh, better known, more recognized. Um, I'd probably, that's a Work was any good. <laughs> Maybe not even that. <laughs> uh, but, um, it, and it's also, I think, um, in a sense, made me a bit defensive about translation and the role of the translator, hmm. which isn't always a comfortable position. While, whereas um, many people, I mean, the gratitude I've received. Uh, domestically here in the United States and from Chile, from much over, around the world, has been extraordinary. Mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, took me by surprise, to say the least. And there was, there's really no reason to be defensive about translating, but I've been put on the spot a lot and asked even in one interview in Los Angeles, well, what's it feel like to be a copyist
1: Oh, yeah. So, so I wonder if that points to um, part of why the art of translation and the practitioners of that art, at least in our generation, are not really held up as artists when in fact it is an art. And it sounds like that's part of the, the reputation game that, you know, one can only build a reputation by touting one's own work and accomplishments. Um, and, and the reputation as a translator is sort of doesn't exist for, for translators at all. It sounds like really, I mean, how, how many can I name? I confess very few, you Mm -hmm. know,
0: well, Kate, you're so. It is an art and it's been recognized that as that for hundreds of years, thousands, actually. Uh, it's the business of poetry and how it treats translation. And also there are a few translators who um, have really, really focused on the business, that is, the business of translation is the same as the business of poetry, getting the work out there, but also making sure that they translated enough different poets and that um, they uh, focus sufficiently on the PR aspects to get... Their name, not only the work, but their names out there, and that's not a uh, criticism. That's simply a fact mm-hmm. and from my point of view. Um, and if you're a translator of ancient Chinese, for instance, and you do anthologies, it's a whole different story. But those poets are long dead. You know, uh, we're talking about the Song Dynasty, Tong Dynasty, China, or equivalency in Japan, um, especially right? and. Uh, It's a very different thing. It's it's odd. but, And I suppose, uh, in some sense, my work grew more slowly because of that, because of the focus on Neruda. But that's, again, only a part of the story, because I believe um, that my own work is far, far better than it would be if I hadn't done that translation. And that's what Rexroth promised us young poets, and uh, years later, Philip Levine, uh, when, I took, when I studied with him at Fresno for a couple of years, uh, he was translating Jaime Sabines with Ernesto Trejo. Mm-hmm. He was you know, very much his focused on translation. And you, know, you, know, you young poets, you're so full of yourselves. Next workshop, don't bring one of your own poems, bring a translation of someone else's. Uh, and if you don't know a foreign language, pick up a dictionary, pick a poet, and translate it. Don't worry too much about quality. And so that's actually how the Neruda series started. Because I found the first book, um, Aoun, in the original, I call it Still Another Day, huh. in the Stanislaus County Library in Modesto. Oh, my
1: goodness. Just uh, chance. i just
0: going in, and I thought I knew all Neruda, but I didn't know those late last books. And uh, there it was, and I pulled it off the shelf. I went, oh, wow. Took it home. First five words, oyes el diamas. I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> today is the day with, and I wrote in my notebook with a little uh, smile, today is the day with the mostest. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Very nice. how did how did Philip Levine like that line? <laughs> it didn't
0: last uh, the no. week <laughs> yeah.
1: so um, so your your comment that your work grew more slowly, but that it also grew to be far better than you think it would have if you hadn't been translating, um leads to the follow-up question that I had, which is, on the other hand, from costs, what gifts has your lifelong practice of translation given you? That you feel could not have been gained um, by focusing solely on your own work. So, could you go into some of the ways that your own work has been made stronger by it?
0: Well, I um, there's a lot to say, Kate. Um, I th- primarily um, trans when you do when you translate, you learn your own language. You know, the ear is so important in poetry, and to translate in an abiding way, a poet like Neruda, who had one of the best year, uh, ears in all of the Spanish language, among all Spanish language poets, you, you, you get trained. Mm-hmm. I used to, before I'd actually translate a poem or a book, I would read the poems in the original into a recording device hmm. and play them back so I could hear it, not just my inner voice or the echo of my voice off the walls, but that um, actually hear in a somewhat objective way what the music sounded like. And uh, so that was really very, very important.
1: Were you, con- I'm going to stop you there, were you confident enough in your own ex- um, expression and enunciation of the language that it was giving you the aural the information that you needed? Yes, no, maybe, sometimes? Close. Close, okay, so. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> so it was, um, my, my pronunciation is far better than say my ability, my fluency, mm-hmm. if I was just speaking the language. Because I didn't get to practice it much in that sense, the conversational aspects. Mm-hmm. But I was—I'm um, part Mexican. My father uh, spoke some Spanish once in a while. My grandparents spoke spoke it at their mm. home. Um, not so a lot. It was
1: in your early ear.
0: It was in my early ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew fascinated by it, in part because sometimes they spoke Spanish when they didn't want me to understand what uh-huh. they were saying. You know? So I, you know, focus in on uh-huh. that. Oh, what a beautiful language!
1: What, what did it mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you would re- you would record the poems and then play them back mm-hmm. so that you could hear them.
0: Yes, and um, that I would do that again before I uh, started actually doing what we call a crib, which is doing a more a more or less literal translation. Mm-hmm. With possible alternatives for words, phrases, lines, and that—that how it taught me my own language. To pay, you know, you you don't leave, you don't know your hometown until you leave and then come back Uh and see it with fresh eyes. Absolutely. And that's how it felt coming, you know, working in English after spending a month or two, or maybe even a year, intensively translating a book of Neruda's. The the scope and the breadth. Here's a you know this was a world traveler. Uh, he was uh, involved in any number of uh, different situations, including the Civil War in Spain, and so he had a very deep understanding of world politics and mm-hmm. dynamics. And I wouldn't say he was always, from my point of view, right in his choices, of what to support, but he was always a humanist, mm-hmm. and that's what he always aimed for. Is the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, But at any rate, having traveled the world and been in any number of different situations over many years, having gone into exile in the late 40s when he was chased out of Chile by uh, President uh, González Videla for calling uh, Videla a jackal.
1: (laughs) Among other things. (laughs) Among other
0: things, and rightly so, um, totally betrayed the people that had elected him put them in minors in concentration camps when they went on strike. That's how Augusto Pinochet got his start, actually was heading up Pusagua concentration camp. uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was the premier camp, if you will. Um, But having the breadth and scope, dealing with the breadth and scope of Neruda's poetry and the strong feeling, the strong emotional content, uh, which is something that I was very feeling a great kinship with. I believe poetry needs, you know, of strong emotions is very uh, useful. All of that, I think, fed into, in a more or less semi, even perhaps unconscious way, my own work. And my work grew because of that. Over time, I never consciously tried to imitate him. I've seen too many Latin American poets, uh, you know, simply uh, die. Young Latin American poets die trying to imitate Neruda. Their work dies because um, he really can't be imitated. Right,
1: so they lose their own voice by trying to make exactly. it take the shape of another. That's
0: very well put, mm. yes.
1: So um, your own work grew and grew over the years alongside your work translating Neruda and your own work comprises poetry but it also comprises a novel and something i noticed in the previous interviews that i checked out of yours is folks don't really talk about the novel very much and um i i would like to spend a couple minutes doing that i think it's a really interesting project um it's co-written and that's unusual for novels Um, i think it's interesting that here once again um, you're choosing collaboration, right? So your your translation practice, of course, is a collaboration with Mr. Naruda, among many other folks, and and then for this novel, you chose to collaborate as well. So, how did the project come about?
0: Well, Kate, when I was editing uh, Willow Springs Magazine for Eastern Washington University, uh, one day in the mail, I received this short story, long short story called No Place for Junits from a gentleman named Han Ping Chin. And I later found out, jumping ahead, we'll jump back in a moment, that uh, Ishmael Reed, he had been taking fiction, writing courses with Ishmael Reed, Han Ping had. He was there studying hydrology oh uh, <laughs> via the English language, having come recently from China in the first exchange of scholars after Nixon loosened things up with China, they sent us, I think, fifty-two scholars. We sent them fifty. Han Ping was in that first wave from China, and so he was getting his Ph.D. in hydrology in Berkeley, and he was. Uh, but he always wanted to write, so he was taking fiction writing with Ishmael, and he said, I, "You know, I want to send this story out." And, he, and Ishmael said, "Well, you should. Where should I send it? Well, send it to Bill O'Day Lee at Willow Spring." And so I, I received this story, and this was the age of minimalism. Ray Carver was the rage, and he actually he had visited not long before this, visited oh, interesting. EW, uh, Ray had, <laughs> and uh, it was very much on my mind, and I was getting all these stories imitating Ray. Only about 0.05% of them, less than 1%, were even remotely successful or even approached what Ray had succeeded at, and so um, I was. And here was this rich, lush, um, largish story about this woman, young woman who had uh, "quote unquote" no place in her China Chinese village, and that is a is disaster. That's often the end of one's life. So I was very moved. I um, invited one of my interns to work with me on the story, editing it because it needed a good deal of editing. Han Ping was very happy and very uh, interested and um, easy easy and good to work with. So we edited this story, published it. We spent maybe three months on it, published it, and it got good reception. So I left um, Eastern Washington in 86, wrote President a letter saying, you hey, know, we got to spread some of that money around, not put it all on the Eagle football team. And highlight some of the academic programs as well. That was a mistake. Oh. (laughs) So uh, I find myself in Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I'm out of work. I'm working landscape crews and stuff like that part-time. And I get this story from Han Ping, and he said, I know your life has changed, and I don't know if you have the time for this, but I have this story, The Fountain Pen. And would you mind editing it for me I'll pay you and I said no you don't pay me I'll edit it for you i would be fine um, so I spent I don't know a couple of months editing the fountain pen and this was a better story even uh, more even more moving about his father uh, working incredibly hard to afford a fountain pen to his son who he saw great promise in as uh, a mm. student it also it was even larger this, you know layered, just beautiful. And uh, he sent it to the Partisan Review and they published it.
1: Oh, fabulous. You
0: know, they edited it and he was sorry he had allowed that because the outcome wasn't what he wanted.
1: Oh, that's disappointing.
0: Yeah. Part of
1: the learning process too with one's work.
0: Yeah, he he had been so cooperative with me and he just continued that and I think they crossed some lines for him. uh, Sorry lost some power. But it was great to be published in the Partisan Review. Sure. And uh, that re- was really encouraging for him. But he was two for two, and that's also dangerous. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> but he had to na- navigate all that. But um, and after Tiananmen Square happened, he had mentioned he had a novel. And after Tiananmen Square happened in 89, he dedicated himself to this novel again. And he sent me, I think, the first three chapters mm-hmm. Um, you know, would you be willing to edit this? And I said, sure, Han Ping, I'll do that. And so I tried to edit it, tried so hard, but there, they were, it wasn't nearly as developed as the stories. Uh-huh. So by that time, I was working at Microsoft and teaching in the evenings at Antioch University in Seattle. And uh, in my spare time, I would edit this, and I would send him, oh, I'd read a chapter, a bookmark, 60, 80, 100 questions, 60, 80, 100 questions for him. He'd send it back with all those questions answered, occasionally going, You sent me 100 questions. Yeah, I did. I'm sorry. And, uh, but I very generous
1: uh, editorial uh, gift.
0: Well, this novel um, was a novel that I would want to read and um, learn from tremendously. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, China, you know, we know China's place in the world. And yet we don't know a lot about the Cultural Revolution. We are under a lot of um, misguided, what do I want to say, ideas about what went on and why it even was instituted. Uh, But at any rate, uh, it's not unique to China in many ways. Uh, We see some of the same things happening here. So I wanted to, I wanted, this novel was very important to me. So I edited it for until about 96, when 95, I guess, when I thought, well, maybe we're ready to start sending this out. Uh, But I looked back at what I had done and sent it to a few agents. And they said, wow, this is, you know, is really interesting. But, um, you know, we can't represent you. And I was beginning to see that it could be, it had grown and grown and needed to be trimmed. Mm. And I was exhausted I thought, you know, I'm not an... I've I've half-written this thing. I approached Han Ping. I I knew we had a ways to go. And I said, you know, what would you think about making me a co-author? I've, you know, spent a lot of money, worked on this, you know, every week for years, and uh, that work is becoming only more intense, and to feel the freedom to really finish this off. And he, he balked at that, and I, you know, can understand why... But his wife said no. He's a co-author. Interesting. Yeah, his his wife Yan Ren, um, was very uh, firm about that, hmm. and he saw it too. I mean, he really saw it. So we came up with an agreement which was very fair. Then I moved into a higher gear. I left Microsoft in '97 mm-hmm. to work on the novel.
1: Oh wow, that's I, quite I, a sacrifice.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, I you know started a little consulting company, and I consulted with Microsoft and other you know. Uh, TV scripts, did a lot of video at Microsoft, TV scripts and various things for people. But in truth, my main task was the novel, working 12 hours a day often. Wow. Um, and we started sending it out again. I started sending it out again in the uh, very early 2000s. We have yet to get it published. It's gotten lots of really great comments, uh, There's one fellow who read it three times and said, this is a long poem, a very, very long poem. Um, uh, One or two uh, New York houses have come close to wanting it uh, by their comments. And uh, even agents have said, oh, this is, you know, so much to admire in this. Um, But as yet, it's uh, unpublished.
1: And what's it called right now?
0: This Earthly Life. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: So what's the plan for it? Is it going to rest for a little? I mean, sometimes it's just not the right time, you know, for a work. The right people aren't there, or the right climate isn't there, or both. So is it resting, or is it back to the drawing board? What's the plan?
0: I think it's, at this point, sound asleep. Uh-huh. Um, in
1: REM cycle. It's, re- it's
0: doing REM right now, <laughs> and uh, dreaming of things to come, I'm sure. Uh, and you're, But you're right. And what happened was that in the 90s, especially the mid-'90s, publishers in New York uh, took a chances on uh, novels based in China. Um, they were publishing uh, Ha Jin, a Chinese-American writer. Um, they were they, There was quite a lot. And there was the nonfiction, too, which still sells pretty well. It's the fiction that didn't meet their uh, sales objectives.
1: Ultimately, interesting. Ultimately, yes.
0: Hmm. Um, and, you know... We wanted to do a novel where I've heard so often, even in some of the highly regarded, uh, so we'll call them Chinese-American novels, people don't understand the motivations of the characters. And that's because of the vast cultural differences. What truly motivates characters is very difficult to understand. And what we wanted to do, uh, our novel uh, was based on the great prolet- proletarian culture revolution, a horrific time in China. Especially uh, sixty-nine to seventy-one, with uh, cleanse the class ranks, where neighbor was pitted against neighbor, right. wife against husband. We uh, we wanted people to understand the characters, and so it's we it's the way we spin it. You know, we don't do a lot of explication, but in China, stories are huge. People tell each other stories. That's how they, especially in previous previous years. That's their nightly entertainment, that's what they do when they drink tea at the tea shop or um, when they work together. Hmm. It's a story-heavy culture. And so we use the the characters uh, to tell the stories that give the background.
1: In their own voices and in in dialogue or in internal monologue or both.
0: Uh, Mostly dialogue, Dialogue. Uh yeah. Uh, It's a first-person narrator. It's Mm -hmm. actually uh, Han Ping, extremely thinly disguised. Mm -hmm. And this is his story, Uh uh, which most Americans have a very hard time getting their head around if you tell even the simple facts of it.
1: I trust that the right time and the right people will come and that the book will find its way and that you know you're just saving up your energy right now. You guys are resting so that you're you can burst out when that time comes and
0: dreaming heavy <laughs> and and it will take
1: flight. Thank you. Um, Kate. So you've already answered the second question I was going to ask about that, which was how and why it became clear that it should be a joint project. Could you talk a little bit about how your experience in the translation of poetry played into your process with the novel?
0: That's an interesting question, because I think at first, it was, in fact, throughout most of it, it was very tenuous. I mean, it wasn't really, I never thought of it in terms of translation. Uh, I just thought of it as a project that I was passionate about and committed to. And that was really it. Uh, We did translate, there are some poems in the the novel. From the Tang and the Sung dynasties, and I think three or four, no, maybe five, and I translated those uh, with Han Ping as an informant, if you will, and but I, you know, I was the translator, and I'd run my translations past Han Ping, which is absolutely necessary. Uh, plum plum blossoms appear in one of the poems, and there are, by many counts, anywhere from forty to fifty. Uh, I settled on 48 connotations for plum blossoms, depending on the context. Wow. Yeah. So we... You don't want
1: the one that's your mother is as ugly as a shriveled plum blossom. Like you want the right connotation. We don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) That, No
0: no Chinese person probably would ever say that. (laughs) And survive.
1: And (laughs) survive. So it strikes me that the novel... Though you're not working in translation literally, you know, where you're translating the language itself. But it is an act of translation in the sense of translating a storytelling culture into, of course, all cultures tell stories. But it's a different kind of storytelling, it sounds like, than we do here in the United States in this contemporary age. So there's that as well as translating Han Ping's story, which is a story that people are finding difficult to understand, so therefore it requires an act of translation through narrative structure, through voice, through maybe tools that aren't normally considered translation tools.
0: Well, you know, Kate, there's, there's a lot of truth in that. And on the other hand, uh, I guess maybe because I've been doing translation so long and in, in such a focused way, that I see almost everything, all communication is mm-hmm. translation. So if you write a poem um, about falling plum blossom, that is translating that experience into language and conveying it in a way that is uh, in some way faithful to the experience, but also smaller and larger than the experience. It's not going to be the the experience. The poem that you write is going to be the experience, and it's going to associate itself with with what the reader has seen, seen plum, plum blossoms falling, or if not plum blossoms, any le- leaves. Um, you know, we all, translation is ubiquitous. It happens all over. So in that sense, maybe that's why I didn't um, connect real strongly with the term translation as I was writing. But there was, it was a significant Uh, effort uh, and significantly difficult to translate Han Ping's experience of China, the Cultural Revolution, into something that Americans could relate closely to. There is, I won't underplay that at all.
1: Mm -hmm. And maybe aren't ready to relate closely to, at at least the way that this book is doing it. You know, I mean, in the fact that it hasn't found its home yet, that Mm -hmm. maybe the time is not yet for that unfortunately. It
0: might not be, you know, we think of China now. When we think of China, it's the uh, political tract we bring to bear. China owns us, you know, which is only true in the narrow, narrow sense. We own a lot of China. It's a very cherry-picked, slogany kind of way to look at a country with the depth uh, of of history and experience of China. And we don't tell a lot of stories in this country, Uh, We have short stories. We have novels. um, But we and the Native uh, Americans are, of course, story-based culture, Mm -hmm. conveying um, uh, their experience from generation to generation. But white America is not a story-based culture. So that may, I don't know if that comes to bear, but it was something that I looked at and tried to make palpable in the novel, where story, you know, it's not story after story, but there are a lot of them, and they roll into the narrative in a hopefully very natural way. That's part of the character of the Chinese, and we're going to be getting closer and closer uh, to the Chinese culture
1: well, so. and perhaps as we get closer, of course, not perhaps, certainly, as we get closer, we will change their culture too. You know, mm-hmm. and so who knows what effect our less story-focused um, or or story-fluent, you know, natural way of communicating will affect. The Chinese natural way, and perhaps even make that a little bit endangered. I mean, I hope that's not true, but you know, as media is so ubiquitous, and you know, everyone in China, just like here, is on their smartphones, and and they're tapped into all of that. Um, I do have concerns about homogenization of of different ways of relating, and so I think what you've done is a wonderful time capsule, and I look forward to reading it. Well, oh, thank when you. When it's out, thank you. I'm going to turn our conversation now back to poetry um, in a direct way, not the long poem that this novel may, in fact, (laughs) be, and talk a bit about chapbooks. You and I are both authors of chapbooks of our own poetry, both published this year. Your really stunningly beautiful book, which I am holding in my hand, is The Road to Isla Negra, and it debuted this summer from Folded Word Press in New Hampshire. And so I wanted to spend a few minutes discussing the chat book as a unique literary form. It's something I'm personally interested in as well. But first, tell us when you knew this chat book was beginning to emerge. I know that you've spent many, many years in the practice of translation, as well as close to Neruda as a person, and I'm sure that has something to do with it. It does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, of course, the book is dedicated to Neruda, uh, Isla Negra was the location of his favorite home of the three homes he had in Chile. Uh, I visited there in 2008, spent three weeks in Chile, and uh, eight days, eight nights on Easter Island, Rapa Nui. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where the second Neruda book, The Separate Roses, set. Uh, And I ended up studying it quite a bit. So it was quite, it was a real pilgrimage. Uh, It was a civil rights tour, if you will, Mm -hmm. They focused on the coup, uh, set 1973 coup. And it was, of course, my meeting, uh, what had previously been only in my imagination and photographs and words of uh, Neruda. And that, I think, engendered these poems more than any single other element or experience. I had purposely not written poems for Neruda while I was translating. That was a conscious choice. It was an easy choice for some reason, but Uh it was very conscious. I had been getting um, the sixth book, the book of questions, after it was published, there was a bit of a a lag. And then I started receiving manuscripts and imitating the book of questions from all over the world. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Especially. uh,
1: Well, it's quite an inspiring form. I mean, it it is, it
0: is. And
1: questions beg to be answered, often with other questions, right?
0: Well, that's often how these questions are best answered. Um, They're little koans, if you will. Uh, So that was eye-opening, and I purposely didn't do that. I purposely did not engage in that um, activity. Uh So when uh, I went to Chile, I came back. I wanted to go to Chile when I did because I wanted to write the last introduction to the last book of translation least at that point, it appeared to be my last, uh, World's End, uh, having been in Chile. Mm -hmm. And I waited because of the coup. And then I worked at Microsoft, and all kinds of things happened, which delayed my visit. I started taking notes there. When I got back, I was writing, more note-taking than anything else. And then about a year, oh, maybe half a year after um, I finished World's End, the eighth book, the poem started to emerge. The one of the five poems in the chapbook, uh, "Questions for Pablo," is my finally saying, "All right, you've asked all these questions. <laughs> now I have these questions for mm-hmm. you, my friend." Uh, so that came really quickly. Uh, in fact, most uh, the long poem for Neruda came quickly, but seeded by notes from a few years before, especially during the visit to Chile. Uh-huh. So it, that's. Uh, it was partly conscious, partly unconscious. It was I was just ready.
1: And so it sounds like the poems kind of came close together in time to you, the poems in the chat book.
0: Fairly close, Fairly together, close together. Yes.
1: Um, when did you know and how did you know that the chat book form was the right form for these particular works to come together in?
0: Well, I had um, folded WordPress, J.S. Uh, Grostein, um, the executive editor, editor-in-chief, of the press, had asked me for a manuscript. And uh, at that point, I had a full-length manuscript of poems at another publisher under consideration. So I thought, and they, they do a lot of chapbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, now I think they're moving almost exclusively to chapbooks. Interesting. But at that I thought, well, what can I give uh, Jesse that would work as a chapbook? And it didn't take me long. To you know, well, the Neruda poems, uh, the poems for Neruda, um, would would make a a nice little chapbook, and so I proposed it to her, and she uh, said um, yes almost immediately. So we we pursued that.
1: So you you had a chapbook of your own work previously published by Copper Canyon Press, The Whale and the Web, which is sadly out of print. Otherwise, I would have procured one by now. Um, and so you had some experience with the form already. I'm curious about how your experience with that manuscript informed your work on this one, The Road to Isla Negra.
0: How The Whale on the Web came into being was a call from uh, Sam Hamill at Copper Canyon years after I had left the press uh, in 78. book came out in 79, so I think it was in 78. He said, hey, I have this idea. I'd like to publish... Four of your poems, he knew my work pretty mm-hmm. well up at that point. So he said, I, "I I propose we use these poems in a fine print chapbook, you know, handset type, um, cotton rag paper."
1: Beautiful.
0: Yeah, that's why it's out of print. Yeah, a, you know, limited run. <laughs> and um, I said, "Oh, that'd be fabulous! Yes, please." So uh, we did that, and I actually, if I recall, mm-hmm. I set much of the type for it.
1: Oh, wow.
0: I went and visited the press and set much of the type, I believe. Uh, I did that for a few projects, so I hope I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> but what I do remember, uh, just as a quick aside, is that the setting, hand setting of the type, you know, letter by letter, space by space, um, do I use a bronze here, You know, or is that too thick, taught me an enormous amount about white space. It really informed my work, uh, musically in particular. So that that advantage, which really probably wouldn't have happened on a full length book, because you know, that's a lot of typesetting. That is a lot of
1: typesetting. Absolutely, absolutely. So this project, this project is is a chapbook, as we've said. I have written one as well, and I feel like the chapbook is a different form from other literary forms, and so. Um, and I haven't fully formulated why I think that is. I'm working on answering that question. So I'm going to cheat and ask you for your answer <laughs> to that question. So does it, and, and I suppose I shouldn't beg the question, d- does it differ for you from other, from a full-length collection of poems, from an individual poem, and if so, how?
0: Well, I've uh, long thought of chapbooks as, this isn't necessarily true, sections or portions of full-length manuscripts that worked uh, intimately and integrally together. And so I think a chapbook has to have a a very, very cohesive uh, structure, as well as music. And uh, thematically, it has to be, the poems have to be intimately related. And that intimately related uh, may not, maybe that's overstating it, but there has to be very close association thematically to single out these relatively small number of poems over 15, 28, no more than 48 pages, and have them work together as a single unit, promising more, perhaps, if they're part of a larger manuscript. But actually, they don't have to be. But I've always, when I think about chapbooks for my work, it's always been uh, that,
1: so the poems in Isla Negra will one day find themselves in a larger collection as well, you think? Or do you think this one does stand alone? Oh, they
0: are part of the larger manuscript uh-huh. that's under consideration. Uh-huh. Yeah. Excellent.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you said up to 48 pages. I This is as a matter of technicality for the poets in the audience who might be considering publishing their work. Um, I have been told by various different presses and other folks lately that chapbooks over 30 or 32 pages are now considered full-length books. So I'm being very careful with my chapbook manuscripts to make sure they're in the 20s, mm-hmm. just so there's no no confusion and they don't count. In my case, it would count as a first a 1st full-length book. Um, and so I thought that was interesting. I didn't actually know it when I submitted this chapbook manuscript, Our Day in the Labyrinth, for consideration. It just happened to be 26 pages, I think. Um, so anyway, that's something to be on the lookout for. And I think that's interesting because it also differentiates the form more fully from the full length book sister, you know, that it's, it's going even more toward the shorter, the shorter end of things. Um, so I find that interesting. I, I want to ask you as well. I know that we are turning the corner toward the end of our presentation. We have a few more minutes together. Um, we both, tend to pair our writing with visual images. Um, and that's something I wanted to spend a few minutes with. So in the in the road to Isla Negra itself, there are photographs by um, Gar- Galen Garwood, and they're beautiful. They are black and white, very um, dramatic photographs, I would call them. They're not high contrast exactly, but um, they are very conceptual and um, ethereal. They're really beautiful. I work in broadsides and postcard broadsides, um, where I do individual artifacts with a poem and an image. My process is to work with my husband, Charlie McComish, who is a trained photographer, to create images that are direct expressions of content in my poems, um, the poems with which they're paired. But it's clear to me that your process in collaboration with Galen Garwood is very different. Um, And so I just wanted you to speak about it a little bit. How did that part of this project come to be? Poems? And what was it
0: like? I um I talked with Jesse and I said, you know, I I'm there are only five poems. One of them's long, but the others are a page each. And so maybe I I, I would like to get um, my friend Galen Garwood involved. His photographs. He's a fine arts painter, uh, photographer, and pretty fine poet. Uh, and would you be interested in that? And he said, she said, yeah, if we could reproduce them, you know, at, at a level at which, you know, does them justice. Right. So, you know, um, why don't you see what he says, and we'll consider it. So I had sent Galen the chapbook, or the manuscript. He read it, loved it, said, oh, I'd be happy to be involved. So he went out after having sat with the poems and shot a whole series of photographs he calls Dream see. Now it's Dream C1. He's uh-huh. working on Dream C2 now. And he said, here it is. You know, he sent me all the photos. Oh, so
1: his photos are a direct reaction to your poems.
0: In a sense, yes. Oh, very interesting. But, you know, he's, been, he's a world-class artist. He's um, uh, recognized as that. He's worked for many years, sort of a mentee of Morris Graves and a few other uh, Northwest poets. Oh. Um, um, poets, painters. He, uh, you know, he's, he has a formidable sensibility of his own. And so, yes, in a way, I mean, he took the, po- he, he took the, po- he let the poems work through him, but when he went out and shot, who knows what he was thinking or mm-hmm. whether he was even thinking about the poems. They were in there somewhere. Okay. So what, what I did is choose um, five, six photos, including the cover photo from the series that I felt would create a dialogue um, that was largely inexpressible, mm-hmm. I wanted to wanted to find the right spark plug gap you know and make it a fairly wide one uh, um, Maybe it's uh, on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, you know, maybe it's God and Adam and those those famous fingers. (laughs) Right, right, just Uh, just
1: enough space between. (laughs) Yeah, exactly,
0: to create Mm -hmm. um, an energy exchange that would never be resolved, never be explained, but feel intuitively right.
1: I think that's a wonderful description, and that was very much my experience of the pieces, that they have their own life, and then when set in conversation with the poems that come before them and that come after them the life of both artifacts gets amplified and increased and that's a really different process my own the images that my husband and i create together are very literal can literally connected to the text so there might be something about shells or a flower or something like that and so that's what we photograph from the, the actual world and put that with the text and these images garwood's images have some natural elements in them some of them do they have water or something that appears to be water. Um, They have like sticks, barren looking sticks, or that could maybe also be sort of um, tree trunks. There's a a human figure in one of them. There are also things that look like flames or smoke um, in them as well. But then there are other things that look like they're coming from elsewhere that they're maybe computer generated even, or certainly machined. They're not natural. They're, they're you know, semi-representational or non-representational. So, um, I think it's a beautiful mixture, and I, I really enjoy the two art forms together. To close, I wanted to talk a little bit about your own writing practice. You and I both work full-time, more than full-time, frankly, <laughs> outside of the creative writing world, and we both have significant auto commutes to work, which takes even more time, um, away or can take it away from our practices. And I know how challenging it is for me to maintain my creative practice. Um, I wanted to hear from you how a little bit about how you structure your life and your days to be the incredibly productive writer you are. And then, um, if there's time, what striking that balance has cost you and your loved ones and also the surprising gifts that it has given you
0: and your loved ones, hoping that there are some
1: <laughs> beyond the work itself? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I, it depends on what I'm working on at the time. I love to write at night. That's my natural rhythm. But uh, when I was translating uh, Hands of Day and World's End, I, I had to get to work, to work at 9 o'clock. I'd get up at 4.45, between 4.45 and 5 o'clock, make a tall mug of coffee,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and just go to my, uh, I have a what I call poet. I have two desks in my study. One of them's is the poetry desk. And What's I'd, the other uh, desk? Uh, the, the everything desk. else
1: desk? <laughs> <laughs> the, the computer desk. <laughs> okay, got it, got it, okay. <laughs> Although it's
0: larger than that, but it, that's where the computer is. And so I'd I'd get in my notebooks out and I'd just work on those books. I've also worked on my own poetry recently, uh, recently in the last two years, sometime in the morning before I went to work. My job right now is extremely full, fuller than it was uh, the job I had three or four years ago, five years uh. ago. And so it's pretty intense. I'm dealing with water issues in California. And so uh, less water, more issues. Right. Um, so. Tonight, it's mostly, you know, th- these days, it's mostly at night, weekends, uh, wherever, whenever I can. I'm just clearing the decks now, actually, of requests and things from other writers for material, blurbs and such. I'm going to shutter myself off. I have a new project dealing with the waterways of New Hampshire.
1: A creative project, just to be clear.
0: Poems mm-hmm. that will be mixed with prose that's of a historical, scientific, ecological Ooh, it nature. Sounds, it sounds and delightful. And they'll be my poems, and who knows what they're going to be, but I need to make some room for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, what it's cost me? Well, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly, to be quite honest, sleep. I, I average... Five and a half hours a night.
1: So that's how you do it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) When I'm awake, that's how I do it. Um, And um, uh, I generally, uh, I don't really know if it's cost me anything else because, you know, that work doing what I call my vocation, which is poetry, Mm -hmm. doing that balances the professional work life.
1: I absolutely agree.
0: And because wherever I've worked, academia, software, um, uh, and now, and since 2006, the environment, um, what I... It, poetry made all that possible. My becoming a, a fairly good journeyman writer made all of that possible, but also the ability to teach myself, uh-huh. which is, you know, liberal arts-oriented based, but also, as her pound said, you're going to be a poet, I extend your knowledge to the utmost, you know. Um, essentially, quoting Confucius, conclude say. So um, it's it's a really symbiotic, even at, even though at times it does cost me. I suppose it's a symbiotic relationship.
1: Mm-hmm. I know that you have a daughter who is launching right shortly. Is she? Didn't she just turn eighteen? She
0: turned eighteen on last Saturday. That's
1: what I thought. And so. Um, so she's been present for your many years of translation and composition of your own work. And she's an artist in her own right. I, I see on glorious social media. Um, so what gifts has the practice given you that, that you didn't expect, perhaps in um, in relation to your family, in relation to um, your own work, in relation to just your own emotional experience of your life, the, the practice of balancing um, the workaday world against your creative life?
0: Maybe it's uh, that I don't, I feel I don't take a lot for granted in that way in terms of family, Kate. Um, it's, and f- having close relationships, I think, fuels good poetry. You pay Absolutely. attention to them, you know, and um, they work their way in either directly or indirectly in the background the way you view the world, I, w- I would say that may be the greatest gift. Mm. Uh, my wife sometimes uh, helps me editorially. Um, I'm really
1: happy to hear you say that. My husband does not think of himself as a writer, but he's one of my first readers, and he's a wonderful reader and is very honest, and I'm very grateful for that.
0: I can understand that. And, you know, th- who knows you better, you know, maybe your mom, your dad... But your your spouse, and maybe then not so. But uh, but your spouse, you know, assuming you've been together a while, uh, knows you pretty well, and even if they aren't, you know, real adept at writing, they know when you're BSing.
1: That's right, exactly. Or when I've been lazy, absolutely. Yeah. It's been such a pleasure to hear more about your practice and to speak a little bit about the chapbook and. I think what I want to draw out of our conversation um, for our listeners is what I'm seeing in your life is this deep river of collaboration that is continuos- continuously carrying you and your own work forward, collaborating with Neruda on the translations, collaborating with Han Ping Ching on the novel, collaborating with um, Galen Garwood on the chapbook, and um, I'm very curious to see what comes in the future with, with future collaborations and also how doing that work and being so present with these other artists through your own art um, benefits this new project for which you're going to cloister yourself and really go both inside and out of doors, it sounds like, at the same time. So I can't wait to see what comes of that and to have another conversation in some time when, when we can reflect on that.
0: Well, thank you very much. Kate.
1: Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you to Insa'a for putting on the Coffee and Poets podcast. Um, it's been a real pleasure. I'm Kate Ashey, and this was Bill O'Daly at um, Naked Lounge in Sacramento.